This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. I'll just start by reciting the uh, opening the Dharma. This Dharma, incomparably profound and minutely subtle, is rarely encountered, even in hundreds of thousands of millions of ages. Now we can see it, hear it, hold and maintain it. May we completely realize its true meaning. Well, thank you for being here, everybody, for this uh, first talk on a series of talks, which I've entitled uh, Indian Buddhist Philosophy, Progressive Stages of Insight into Emptiness. And for the first talk, we are, I'm just going to really talk about uh, philosophy as practice and just like a basic introduction to philosophy. Uh, so we won't be going into the details of Buddhist philosophy in particular, but we'll just be giving an overview of philosophy. And I'll also give you an overview of what's going to be in the course. And we'll be having one of these uh, talks once a month, every four weeks. So Buddhist philosophy as practice. So I've called the series of talks uh, Indian Buddhist philosophy, uh, progressive stages of emptiness. And um, so why Indian Buddhist philosophy? Well, primarily um, the, well, nearly all the, the ma nearly all the major schools of Buddhist philosophy originate in, uh, in India. And um, starting, of course, with the original oral teachings of the historical Buddha, which were not uh, translated or transcribed into, into languages until many centuries later. And, um, and so the, uh, the Buddhist philosophy obviously has its origins with those oral teachings. Uh, and then, of course, it spreads across throughout the world, into, uh, especially into China, which is where our concern is. And, uh, and probably the, the most famous uh, non-Indian philosopher is Dogen, but he doesn't start writing until the 12th century. Uh, so um, we won't be touching much on Dogen. It's, we'll be focusing on Indian Buddhist philosophy. So uh, why, does, why, why does philosophy matter? Um, because uh, from a Zen Buddhist point of view, it's a good question to ask because Zen is often introduced as a, a special transmission outside the scriptures, not, not founded upon words and letters. By pointing directly to mind, it lets one see into one's own true nature, thus attaining Buddhahood. So that was, uh, that, that particular quote was attributed to, um, 
from Bodhidharma. Um, and, and that was one of the distinctive, I guess, uh, markers of Zen, this, this real strong emphasis on meditation only. So traditionally, Zen intended to throw us in the deep end. Um, you know, when I first started practicing Zen, and many people did back in the 70s and 80s, you may have been given a few instructions on, on your posture, and then you were just left left to get into it. Uh, maybe a few simple instructions on following your breath or counting the breath, and uh, and then you were just left to meditate. Um, and um, it could get um, yeah, it was sometimes difficult to work out exactly what it was you were doing. However, Zen teachers also do and give Dharma talks. Uh, during retreats during sessions and and dharma talks um in that sense were the main way in which the the underlying philosophy was presented but always with an with an emphasis on pointing directly to the experiential realization of mind but um having said all of that we have to also bear in mind the fact that um, even bodhidharma when he came in the uh, fourth or fifth century from India, he was a Brahmin. Bodhidharma would have been trained in Indian philosophy, and he came carrying the what's called the Lankavatara Sutra scroll, uh, tucked under his arm. So um, we can be assured that the early Chan masters, following Bodhidharma, were very well acquainted with the uh, with the sutras, with the Buddhist teachings from India, which were gradually translated into Chinese. And uh, so um, most Zen Chan masters would have had a training in, in, in philosophy in that sense. But of course, um, when you listen to Dharma talks, um, they, 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 they can't cover the, uh, the hundreds of years of Indian Buddhist philosophy. Uh, and, and neither can I in this particular series of talks. But I think it's good to get a, a little bit of background and, and I'll go into explaining why I think that's important. In contrast to uh, Zen Buddhism, um, Tibetan Buddhism um, has always valued philosophical understanding uh, and debate as an important practice, which they see as being inseparable from meditation. So, I am not a professionally trained philosopher. I did some philosophy at university, but um, but I have found myself acquainting myself with Indian Buddhist philosophy over the past year or so. Um, it's really been helpful in enriching my understanding of Zen practice, and I wanted to share that with you. And uh, and because Indian uh, Buddhist philosopher is also it's very psychological. In fact, uh, sometimes the uh, the the Indian philosophy has been translated as, India, as, as the Buddhist psychology. So um, given that we think of the ordinary mind Zen school as incorporating a psychological perspective into our practice, uh, a, psycho, a contemporary psychological perspective, I think it's also, we can also see it as in, you know, importing a philosophical perspective into our practice as well in the same spirit. And, uh, and given the fact that philosophy and psychology are very closely related. So, um, 
why so why so why have i found it helpful um well essential background in some ways to understanding um the enormous literature in the sutras and zen koans so there's there's, there's so many sutras and there's so many koans um and of course the koans capture these dialogues between chan masters and the students and often the these dialogues in the koans and the sutras make reference to a lot of, of, of buddhist philosophical terms whether that be for example teachings on buddha nature um teachings on karma uh, teachings on the nature of reality in general they're often referenced in the literature and uh, if you don't have some background in the, in, the, in, in the philosophical literature, sometimes it's difficult to understand what they're actually going on about. So having some appreciation of, of some basic appreciation of, of Buddhist philosopher is, is really good in helping us to understand the context of these Zen, sometimes sort of paradoxical and sometimes hard to understand Zen dialogues. So that's one. Another reason um, is Buddhist philosophy is quite different to the kind of philosophy you'll get in Western philosophy departments, which um, Buddhist philosophy, very similar in ways to the, uh, the Hellenistic philosophers in ancient Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome, like Stoicism and Epicureanism, Epicurus and the Stoics. That, that kind of philosophy was primarily concerned with uh, our emotional health and well-being. It was primarily concerned with happiness and the allevi alleviation of suffering, very much in the same way that Buddhist philosophy is. As you all know, the Buddha is often quoted as saying, I teach only suffering and the ending of suffering. So in a way, Buddhist philosophy uh, is to the role, in a way, is to clarify the original teachings, such as the Four Noble Truths, on the origins of suffering and the ending of suffering. Uh, so, for example, by understanding how suffering arises, because we fundamentally misinterpret our experience of reality by seeing permanence where there is only impermanence, independence where there is only interdependence and separate selves where there are none so to bring our suffering to an end we must see things as clearly as we can uh, to, 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 to see through some of the distortions that we are conditioned to uh, uh, to identify with uh, which generate suffering so we need to see through our default way of perceiving the world and each other through the lens of subject-object duality. However, because we are so deeply conditioned, either in this lifetime or many lifetimes, depending on how you see that, we're so deeply conditioned to perceive the world in this way, it's called karmic consciousness, that um, philosophy can help us to see things, help us to see things differently it's, it, it's a really good practice and it can prepare us to see things differently. But ultimately, from the Buddhist point of view, only meditation can really uproot the fundamental deluded way of perceiving reality. So philosophy in this sense is a kind of therapy that can take us some of the way, but in the end, it is only meditation that ultimately brings us across to the other shore. Um, 
And remember too, in Buddhism, the emphasis is always on direct experience. It's not on beliefs. And uh, we might want to deconstruct and, uh, our beliefs, but in order to get through to our direct experience through meditation. So in some ways we engage in philosophy to actually then let it go, you know, after it's served its purpose to, to loosen up our kind of conditioned way of seeing things. So similar to like, you know, the, uh, the metaphor of the raft to get us to the other shore. Once we've got to the other shore, we can kind of like let go of the, of the philosophy, leave the raft behind. And you're all familiar with the four noble truths. And the last of the noble truths is the path, the eightfold path. And that, that way of setting out things was kind of like typical of Indian Buddhist philosophy. It's not unique to Buddhism. So in Indian Buddhist philosophy, there was always this idea of a, 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 a view called the view, and then the path, which was the meditation and, and our conduct, and the result being liberation. And the Eightfold Path uh, talks about the view right at the start, and then you know moves through ethical conduct and, and ways in which to uh, and wisdom. And, and meditation. So um, view is part of the wisdom. And the path is concerned, like the view orientates us, it's primary to the path that we walk, and the result is the transformation uh, following the path. So the view is concerned with liberation from confusion and suffering via the path of meditation and conduct. So I'm just going to do a screen share now. Uh, just hang on a second. <clears throat> so this is particular talking about the view and the three kinds of wisdom. So the view, the meditation and the conduct, what I was just talking about, must all work together for our overall practice to be effective. It's possible to seek the view through meditation, but it is also possible to arrive at meditative practice or realization through the view or philosophy. And we achieve this practice by three kinds of wisdom. So this is not complicated. So the, the first is the wisdom that arises through learning or studying. So it's, it, it's good to study uh, the sutras and study the, um, all the various Dharma books that are available these days. And many of us have been doing that. So, and, and through listening to Dharma talks on podcasts or or through our Dharma talks here. So to begin with then, we seek to understand these concepts, these key concepts and frameworks that we get through reading books or listening to Dharma talks. We learn the content of the teaching. For example, we learn the idea about how, the idea of self and how that teaching critiques the idea of self. Sorry, that's a bit wrong there. Um, so we, you know, we read about how in Buddhism um, the they deconstruct the self as having no essential identity and so forth. So we read about that in, or we listen to that in our Dharma talks. Uh, 
Then the second stage is the wisdom that then arises through contemplating what you have learned. So the idea is when issues and questions emerge, start contemplating them very much in the way you might contemplate a, a question that you're given in a koan. You can contemplate particular questions that just arise from from reading or listening to Dharma talks and uh, you can carry those questions with you. Uh, it doesn't need to be analytical, just be, just keep the questions in mind, perhaps during the day, let yourself think about them. For example, you might ponder whether yourself is identical to the components of your body and mind or different from them or neither identical nor different. Can anything that exists be neither identical nor different. So these are the kind of some of the kind of questions that uh, Buddhist philosophy raises it starts to kind of get us questioning our common sense or default way of of understanding or seeing the world. It can be a little bit puzzling at times. And it can take us to the brink sometimes of a kind of insight of a uh, similar to what they talk about in koans. So that's the wisdom that arises through meditation. At a certain point, you may have a kind of aha moment, like a breakthrough when something makes sense. So then that's when you want to do this, you know, go back into the meditation practice, settle the mind and simply allow yourself to be in that kind of aha moment. So you can see how um, the meditation practice is very much uh, complementary and very much connected to the um, the the, uh, the the philosophy the all and the and the conduct so they all make sense together So Indian Buddhist philosophy included what we would call today psychology or cognitive science. For example, there were many theories of perception, how we perceive the world. And, um, and some of these teachings are found in what are called the Yogacara school, which was what um, when uh, Bodhidharma came carrying the Lankavatara Sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra is very much a, what's called a Yogacara uh, text uh, yogacara simply means the practice of the yoga or practice of yoga or the, the meditation practice the yogacharans placed a lot of emphasis on meditation and understanding the mind because when you start to get into meditation then you're talking about well how do we understand the mind and uh so the yogacara teachings were initially very influential on zen uh practice but uh when we had the huanang the sixth ancestor uh, he, he, he focused more on the emptiness teachings, the diamond Sangha teachings. And so they came to dominate Zen as well. But there was still the background of the Yogacara school. And, uh, and so in, in our ordinary mind Zen practice today, when we talk about a psychologically minded Zen practice, really right from the get go, um, Zen wasn't sort of had a psychological background, a psychologically minded approach. But it sometimes got lost uh, in the emphasis on 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 uh, on the uh, koan practice and the uh, and the just sitting practice. But there was a lot of psychological depth in the Yogacara school. 
So um, I think through studying the Yogacara school, it can be very helpful to, as a background, to sort of weaving in and integrating our contemporary understandings of psychotherapy and psychology. And, um, you know, just contemplating these questions can, you know, provide us with a foundation, a meaningful foundation and purpose and contemplating on our purpose and meaning in life. And uh, Buddhism certainly provides that along with other philosophers and helps to clarify our values and ethics and why we have certain values and ethics. Um, but the other thing too, there's a huge diversity in Buddhist philosophy. Um, and uh, as there is a huge diversity in the kind of sutras and the teachings of Buddhism, can get very confusing at times. So it's also um, because of that diversity, it's good to try and get a sort of background to some of this stuff to we know where people are coming from. I mean, after the original um, oral teachings of the Buddha, there was about 18 different schools of Buddhism that were formed. There's only one school from that particular wave called the, the Theravada school, the school of the elders that's still left. But originally there were 18 different schools. And of course, there are many different schools in Zen Buddhism, many different schools in Tibetan Buddhism and so on. I mean, it was said that there were 84,000 different teachings for the diversity of all people that Buddha taught. Hence the very many variations of Buddhist philosophy, the idea of a particular teaching fitting a particular person. And there's some ways that's a similar in psychotherapy. You try and tailor the psychotherapy for the individual you're working with. In Buddhism, we have to find our own kind of way of finding the teachings that really fit for us, really make sense to us, because it's going to be different for each one of us. And then that, so that takes us to the importance of lineage in Buddhism. So a lot of the philosophy, the philosophical understandings are often there's an, often an allegiance to a particular lineage. Uh, and uh, so when we're talking about philosophy, we're also talking about particular lineages that embody this philosophy. So the, uh, the, the Zen Buddhist lineage is actually very, very a powerful lineage because it includes nearly all of the philosophers in it. Um, two of the most famous Buddhist philosophers, Nagarjuna, who was very famous for the emptiness teachings, and Vasubandhu, who was very famous for the Yogacara teachings, are both part of our Zen Buddhist lineage. And uh, it's the same in Tibetan Buddhism. There are four or five different schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and the, and the different lineages have different philosophies and different ways of approaching meditation and different emphases. Um, so our ordinary mind Zen lineage um, I will just, um, I'll just show you that somebody recently put together um, the, uh, the Ordinary Mind Zen School lineage. I'll just show that with you. So that's Charlotte Joker Beck, Ordinary Mind lineage chart. And... Um, the following chart provides the names and contact information for blah, 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 blah. Um, so we've got different kinds of transmission among different people. We've got full transmission, which gives you the authority to teach and transmit and give uh, to others and give jukai, given to both ordained and lay people. You've got, uh, so there's, there's two different kinds of trans, transmission, denbo and denkai. 
And uh, so I had both of those kinds of transmission. The, De the Dembo transmission was the final transmission for me. Sometimes you have them both at the same time called Shiho. And uh, there's also people that uh, get uh, like practice leaders, like we call them facilitators in Ozen. So like we had Joko, she gave transmission to Ezra Bider, Anne Christensen, who I don't know, Jeff Dawson, who is an Australian teacher based in Sydney, Elizabeth Hamilton and, and Ezra are no longer teaching, they're retired. Greg Howard um, is a teacher, ordinary mind teacher in Brisbane. Then of course you all know Barry Majid, uh, Gary Nafstead, I don't know, Barbara Penns in Pennsylvania, I think, Diane Rizzetto, some of you have read her book, uh, she's based in California, and Elihu Gemio-Smith, some of you have read some of his work. And then, so that's, they were the, they were the people that Joker gave transmission to, and then we have um, the, uh, the next line uh, of teachers, um, so you can see that Barry gave transmission to Pat George, Mark Poirier, who, who died a few years ago, Karen Tanzano, who lives in Finland, she's American, uh, Claire, uh, myself, uh, and uh, I have full transmission, not just Denkai, so that's not, not quite correct. And then, uh, yeah, and then there's been a, f yeah, uh, so that's the that's the uh, that's the ordinary mind teaching lineage. So the ordinary mind school is a lay lineage, and um, independent lay teachers are just a quite a. That they knew that's a, it's a new development in Buddhism happening during the last uh, 20, 30 years um, in, in the West. The first important lay Zen Sangha was called the Zanbo Zen lineage, which still continues. And that was started by a guy called Yasutani Hakun Roshi in 1954. You know, so lay practice in Zen is very new. Um, Maizumi Roshi. Um, who had already received Dharma transmission from the traditional Soto lineage, received transmission from Yasutani, who integrated Koan Zen with Koan Zen with Soto Zen. When Joko Beck received Dharma transmission from Mazumi, uh, Joko didn't continue the Koan curriculum style of teaching, preferring instead a more psychological approach. Barry Majid continued to emphasize a psychological approach. And also keen to emphasize our connection with Dogen's Soto Zen, especially Dogen's main practice of just sitting. So this kind of practice can only be understood by appreciating the Mahayana tradition of the philosoph the philosophical tradition of Mahayana, what uh, the Mahayana tradition means by Buddha nature, which is the teaching of original awakening. You know, when we talk about awakening is not something we gain, but something we recognize is already here. That's all in our philosophical tradition. The Soto lineage was established by Dogen, and, and he's the most important philosopher of the Soto lineage. So during this course, we'll get some background on Buddha nature teachings, but we will we'll, we'll, we'll not be studying Dogen. We might do Dogen later in the year. So my studies 
uh, in Zen have been complemented by studying the non-dual teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, in particular what's called the Prajnaparamita teachings, the emptiness teachings, the Mahamudra and Dzogchen teachings with a guy called Peter Fenner. Peter was a, uh, uh, a former Tibetan monk in Australia, and, and then it, later on he became developed his own teaching style and became an independent teacher, an independent Australian non-dual teacher. Peter lives in Canberra, and, uh, and I'll come back to that a bit later. So, in a sense, every teacher will have a slightly different understanding and different realization of what all this means, uh, uh, depending on their lineage, depending on their teacher, and depending on, on their own realization. So, in a sense, I can't teach you the one true Dharma, because there is no such thing. There are all different interpretations of Dharma, different understandings of Dharma in the vast Buddhist tradition. So every teacher has their own version of the Dharma, but there are obviously things very much in common that we, we have a family, um, we have a family that has these things that we share in common, but we also have slightly di slight differences in the family. So everyone teaches in their own unique way because there's no other way you can teach. So it has to be based upon your own realization of the Dharma. So what will I be focusing on? Well, the course will culminate in an appreciation of non-duality, especially what is often referred to as non-dual awareness, which is our meditation practice. But I want to give the philosophical background to that, how we get to that. So non-dual awareness or non-conceptual wisdom, as I understand it. Here's a quote from a, a, a teacher, a Tibetan teacher in Wales. She's a Welsh woman called, I forget her first name, but her surname is Hookman. She wrote a book called The Buddha Within. A quote from her. From earliest of times, the Buddha's doctrine of ultimate reality has been presented both in a positive as well as negative terms. On the positive side, the Buddha is described as eternal, non-conditioned, compassionate, all-knowing and so forth having realized nirvana which is eternal non-conditioned bliss and so on on the negative side the buddha is described as having realized nirvana which is cessation of all that is conditioned impermanent suffering and so on he realizes this through ceasing to cling to conceptual creations either positive or negative so, you know, even in that, you can see how there are some discrepancies and differences in the way in which people will understand Buddha nature and how you conceptualize it. So, in the end, philosophy takes us only a certain way. It can only take us to the, it can't go into the non-conceptual, it can't go into non-duality. That's where it gets paradoxical. And ultimately, we make that leap into the Buddha nature into the non-dual, which is non-conceptual, often goes by the word prajna or non-conceptual non wisdom or in, in intuitive wisdom. So the background to this understanding is really important, based on the history of Buddhist philosophy practiced in India before it moved into Tibet and China. So we'll therefore, we will be covering what the Tibetans call the three turnings of the Dharma so this begins somewhere around about the uh, uh, when 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 the Buddha gave his original teachings. So and um, 
I will just talk about the outline of the course. So the first turning um, is called, you know, we're all familiar with the four noble truths, the four marks of existence, like no self, interdependence, impermanence, suffering, and nirvana. So this is the first view on the ultimate nature of reality. And this was um, really collected in what were called the Abhidharma, the higher teachings they were called. So you had the, the, you had the sutras and you had the monastic rules, the vinyana. Then you had the, what was called the Abhidharma. This was the first turning of the Dharma. Sometimes the Abhidharma was called Buddhist psychology. And um, it's quite complex, goes into lots of different lists of all the different dharmas. But the main thing, so we'll be starting on that next, next month. And that particular school, I'll, I'll just say a bit more about these terms afterwards. It's called realist ontology. The, the early Buddhist teachings, these particular teachings, the Pali teachings were often, uh, they understood that there was an external reality that had a, they were called dharmas. Okay. The second turning of the wheel comes, the most famous philosopher there is a guy called Nagarjuna. And he's the one that really upturns all of that. And he says that existence is empty, it, not just of the self, but everything is empty. There is no self anywhere. Ob objects, there's no external reality that has any fixed reality neither. And that school, the Maju Marcus Middle Way School, often called just the Middle Way School, uh, is a sort of like an anti-realist school. And um, so he, he through, through, through his particular philosophy in the way he used logic, basically uh, overturns that, that the first turning of the wheel brings about another understanding. However, some Buddhists were concerned it was, it was a little bit too nihilistic. And that led to what was called the third turning of the wheel. And that's what, that's what we call yoga chara, the practice of yoga school. And the emphasis, they wanted to bring the emphasis back to the experiential realization of emptiness. What, okay, everything's interdependent and impermanent. There's nothing that's fixed anywhere. And, uh, but it's, it doesn't not exist neither. It's just not nothingness. So what is it? And uh, how do we realize that experientially? How do we realize emptiness experientially? So that's what the Yogacara school is concerned with. And, uh, and, and they develop, especially the, they were the first to really talk about the importance of seeing through the, uh, the, uh, the dualistic ontology of subject and object. And there's different ways of interpreting Yogacara. And some people see it as being an idealist philosophy. Some people see it as being more cognitive or phenomenological. And I'll talk more about that later. Then we'll, then we'll move on. When we finish with Yogacara, we'll move on to the, really the, what they call the great compassion teachings or the, the path of the Bodhisattva. And in terms of Mahayana philosophy, it's probably the path of the Bodhisattva or the compassion teachings, which ultimately unite the whole of Buddhist philosophy. So, you know, all Buddhist philosophers, really, they might have their disagreements over what, what is knowledge, what is perception, what is reality. But in terms of the actual focus on compassion, 
and the focus on the bodhisattva ideal, they would all share that in common. That, that's really what unifies Buddhism. So we'll talk about that. And then we will then go on to some revision, sort of demonstrating the application of Buddhist philosophy to understanding, for example, the Heart Sutra, that classic text that we chant, uh, the psychology of self and koans. And then finally, we'll finish with how this all takes us into non-duality. And um, there's a movie that was a that's just come out recently called Awareness, uh, Contemplation with Peter Fenner. So we'll be, we'll be viewing that movie and exploring the practice of non-duality. And that'll take us to the end of this particular series of um, lectures, talks. Um, in terms of um, suggested reading, um, Indian Buddhist philosophy by Amber Carpenter. Now there's just one more, um, um, I'd just like to introduce you before I finish, just to some, just to some, a couple of key uh, Buddhist um, terminologies, uh, sorry, philo philosophical terms, which I think are important to um, get an understanding of. Um, so you would have all come across this word metaphysics. Um, so um, metaphysics is basically in philosophy, it's just what, what is the nature of ultimate reality? So metaphysics in, ex explores the questions, what is reality? Sometimes you'll come across a word called ontology, um, which is uh, studying the nature of being or becoming or existence or reality. It's kind of like a subset of metaphysics. Um, sometimes you'll come across in Buddhist philosophy, uh, something called nominalism. So basically nominalism basically says that universals don't really exist. They're merely names or labels, all the nouns that we usually use, like cats, dogs, self, um, um, you know, Andrew, Kate, everybody, chairs, tables, all these things that we give these names to, like a noun, are actually, when you break it down, they actually don't, they only exist conventionally. They only exist as labels. They don't actually exist in reality. That's nominalism. Um, that's the other alternative is called realism. The view that objects do exist in the external world, independent of perception or independent of mind. That's realism. And then there's idealism. That's the view that reality is mind only or consciousness only. This doesn't necessarily mean that um, there is no reality external to our individual mind, that would be solipsism, but that reality is also mind only or consciousness only. Um, so there's a sense in which we are all these kind of uh, conscious agents, these uh, almost like sort of uh, various light beams in consciousness itself, but, uh, but reality itself is consciousness as well. And we're all kind of experiencing this kind of um, uh, simulation, if you like, of reality. Um, like all, everything that appears is appearance in our mind, but it works in a way in which we all kind of like experience the same kind of um, like icons, like on a computer screen. Um, so that's, that's, we'll be getting into some of that.
And uh, so idealism argues that the appearances are, yeah, just that. The appearances are constantly changing. Appearances are interdependent. Appearances are impermanent. But there is something which is changeless, and that's the Buddha nature. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, and the other term you'll come across is epistemology. Uh, that's just basically, what does it mean to know? Can we know anything? What is knowing something? What does that mean? How do we know things? What's truth? Can we, know, can we have, understand truth? Is there anything that objectively we can know? Can we know anything for certain? And, you know, like uh, Western, Western science often works on the epistemology of correspondence to reality so that we try and have these scientific theories we think that are corresponding to the truth of how things really are. Um, there's a, one kind of epistemology called pragmatism, which says it's only really results that, uh, make a th that, that are useful for a theory or a practice to be true, not correspondence to reality. And then you, you get different varieties of cognitism, cognitivism, where they kind of like experience, we experience the external world, but through the interface of our mind. So it's our mind which constructs, our cognitions which construct the world. Then there's phenomenology, that's kind of like the study of phenomena or first person experience. So science doesn't really study first-person experience very much. It's more like third-person experience. We're all observing something. Whereas phenomenology tries to do a very sort of scientific, as best they can, exploration of what it's like to be a person, what it's like to experience pain, what it's like to experience pleasure. You try and understand that from a first-person perspective. Uh, and then, uh, so for example, in research into meditation, you might get some third person studies, you might study the, the uh, images of the brain during meditation, that's a third person kind of way of knowing something, then you might interview meditators themselves about their experience, that's a phenomenological or first person way of exploring it. And finally, we obviously the other important aspect of philosophy and Buddhist philosophy is, is ethics. And you know, Buddhist philosophy tends to have a sort of similar schools of ethics that you find in the West. One school of ethics in Buddhism would be what we would call innate goodness, that we're all innately good, it just gets obscured, and, uh, and uh, the cultivation of virtues called the precepts. Um, Buddhism wouldn't say there's a, such a thing as evil, they would see it more as in terms of the consequences of intentional actions. That's a sort of consequentialism. That's, that's karma. Karma means uh, intentional action. And uh, karmic consciousness is the kind of like the accumulation of all our, not just individual uh, actions, but from a Yogacara point of view, it includes our cultural and uh, historical conditions and how all that gets moves through along during our lifetime, like a mind stream. It's almost like there's a stream of there's, there's consciousness, awareness, and then all these different habits and conditionings and intentions and formations, samskaras that are continuously reproduced from what most Buddhists would say from one lifetime to another lifetime, or you could just see it from one moment to the next moment gets reproduced. And that's karma, karmic consciousness. 
So um, thank you for your patience and for listening. I've, as usual, I talked a lot longer than I was going to, intended to, um, who have come to the end of our time. So if you're, if you're unhappy to answer.